If you would take your scriptures and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, we'll be reading the entire chapter. 2 Peter 1, if you'll give ear to the reading of God's word. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who likes these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning to your word. We come to hear from you, to learn of the hope we can have in you as our sovereign Lord. You declare in your word that you wrote these things to those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that we might know we have eternal life. We hope in you and in the promises you have given us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grant us grace this morning and ears to hear. Give us a heart, a heart attitude that will help us grow as witnesses for you. We thank you, Father. We thank you for your grace and mercy working in our lives. Bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen. In our study of 2 Peter, we have heard him declare the foundation and the purpose of election. 
In these next verses, we hear him announce the proof of election. You can see the foundation and understand the purpose of something such as a house until you have proof, though, like the word of the builder or maybe a set of plans, you cannot know for sure what's being built. Peter has told us that the foundation of election is the great and precious promises of God. He has declared the purpose of election to be the saving of God's people from their sins. In these next verses, Peter offers proof. Proof that he is teaching a doctrine from God. He shows that it is God's intention through election to save a people unto himself. I don't have a particular hard time understanding why people want to fight so hard against the idea of election. It's a concept that can really boggle the mind. Why would God create a world and allow his creatures to rebel against him and then save some from their sinful, self-directed run to destruction while allowing others to go their own way and be destroyed. The truth is, God gave to man the opportunity to be obedient. And when man failed to follow God's command, he was condemned to death, and that condemnation applied to all men. They were all lost and without hope, dead in their trespasses and sins. Many failed to understand the condition of men in the unregenerate state, they want to pull God down to their own level. They call the con- this concept of election unjust. They demand, demand that God not hold them accountable for their sins. I believe the thing most people who oppose this idea of election do is to try and make God their equal and make him abide by the rule of the conduct that they impose. I think this is a natural course of thought for men to follow, and if you're honest, I think you'll have to admit you have had similar thoughts. Peter knows mankind. He was guilty of denying Jesus himself in the face of persecution. He knows what men think of life and how they react to hard teaching. He comes to this letter with a desire to present the truth. He begins with the hardest of teaching, the teaching on election, the idea that God is sovereign and in complete control of every aspect of your life. He declares without hesitation that it is God and God alone who meets every need you have for both life and godliness. Isn't that a wonderful thought? He goes on to show without doubt that God, through the means of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, has accomplished everything necessary for your salvation. He does not leave room in which to wiggle theologically. You are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. He shows that even with a sovereign God, as that God is a provider of everything in the process of salvation, you you are given duties. Duties in which you are called to show your love and appreciation for this precious promise of eternal life. Having made clear that these duties are a response to salvation and not a requirement for salvation, Peter offers proof. 
of what he's been talking about. He first speaks of his personal testimony. This is the testimony of his own faith and zeal for what he teaches. Second, he gives a testimony concerning his and the other disciples' experience in walking with Jesus Christ. Last, he gives them the most important witness of all, the witness of God's own word. Peter turns his attention to his personal perspective as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verses 12 through 15. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that strongly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be very careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Peter, in this statement, is showing his concern for the well-being of the church. He places the life of the church clearly in relation to God's truth, and upon this he offers proof of the doctrine he teaches. He says, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Now, I don't know about you, but that really gives me great comfort that he's going to continually be out here reminding me of what I need to know about Jesus Christ. He says, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. This shows no matter how much we learn, it's important that we continue to hear the foundational truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The I will here is a double future, showing an immediate future and a long-term future. The Jerusalem Bible gives this thought best. That is why I am continually recalling the same truths to you. Now, I've heard people get upset with pastors because they continue to teach the basic principles of Christianity. They say, we've already heard that. Let's move on. Yes, we need to go deeper. But never, never at the expense of the foundational truths. Peter makes it clear, we must not do that. The true believer will never tire of hearing about the wonderful truths that make up his salvation. How do you get tired of hearing of God's love and grace when it's the foundation of your new life. Peter sees his duty to be that of reminding people of the wonderful gospel God has given in Jesus Christ. This is his personal testimony of God's call on his life. Peter declares that it matters not that they are established in these truths. It's irrelevant. He still has a duty to declare these truths to them repeatedly. This is the same thing Paul says he did in Romans 15, 15. I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. Paul saw that as his duty also, to continually put the gospel before everyone. Philippians 3, 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but it is safe for you. John concurs in 1 John 2.21. I have written to you because you do not know that I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, 
but because you know it. It is the responsibility of every preacher to repeatedly declare the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no excuse for ignoring those truths. None whatsoever. Peter goes on to say in verse 13, Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. Peter testifies to God's call on his life and his desire to fulfill that call as long as God allows him to live. Peter wants to continually deliver the proof of election to everyone. He says, you know his time on this earth draws to a close and it's his desire to double his effort. He sees it's short for him, so he wants to make the most of it he can. He wants to stir up the memories that you have of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, this means to wake up or to arouse. He uses this word because he knows the tendency of men to be lazy and to let slip those things that have gone before. Now, none of us are guilty of that, are we? It is said to forget history is to repeat history. So let's not forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the great and dangerous tendency to rest on our past achievements and to lose our alertness. This is why it's so important that we continually preach the gospel to ourselves as well as to have others preach it to us. We are not re-preaching it in order to, to add to our salvation or to be resaved, as some would teach. Peter says he is coming to the end of his life and he has a desire he wants to accomplish before he dies. Verse 15, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these after my decease. What is it Peter wants to accomplish? What does he want to do here? He wants to leave a record a record of the truths he has proclaimed. How is he going to do that? Through the writing of the letters that he writes, Paul has, Peter has given to us two letters. In these two documents, he's delivered to us a review of all the wonderful truths that make up the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter has also a, and has had a hand in the writing of the gospel of Mark. He is the apostle that led Peter, or he is the, the uh, apostle that led Mark through the writing of the, the gospel of Mark. Peter's testimony is that he has preached the truth. He has also shown he will continue to preach the truth by the power and through the works the Holy Spirit has called him to do. He gives proof of the election of God through his obedience to the command of God to continually proclaim the great and glorious gospel. Peter moves on from his personal testimony concerning his call to his personal experience. Verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now the thing you should notice is that Peter has changed from a personal testimony here. Where he used the pronoun I to be an eyewitness, to show an eyewitness account. 
But now, he changes to include others as he shows with the pronoun we. He begins, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word fables, or as your, some of your translations might have stories, in the Greek, the word is really the myths. Peter says that he nor any of the other apostles made up any myths about Jesus Christ. Everything they have declared about Jesus in his mystery is true. This is not true of the false teachers Peter is going to talk about in the next chapter. One of the greatest dangers faced with false teachers is their desire and willingness to leave the basic truths of the gospel behind. They follow after myths, or as Peter has already called them, destructive heresies. It's my opinion that much preaching from our pulpits today is based on myths and not from God's word. I think this is one of the dangers of preachers who tell story on top of story in their sermons. Where do these stories come from? What gives them the weight of truth? Peter says he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses of the truths they declare. They got what they preached from personal experiences with Jesus Christ. The same should be true of those who preach today. Their preaching should be based on their personal experiences with Jesus Christ through the study of his word. Perhaps we need to consider a moment what a myth really is. It's a story. It's a story that some man makes up to express his own thoughts and is without any point of contact with reality. It's just made up. The main focus of all myths is on man. Therefore, a myth is completely devoid of any redemptive power. 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 4. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. To tell stories with the idea that they will help people better understand the truth is, according to Paul, to promote doubt of the truth. Well, now, I'm sure there's someone who's going to say, what about the parables Jesus gave? In Matthew 13:10, it says, And the disciples came to Jesus and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered the question, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. He spoke in parables to hide the truth, not to reveal it. Why? Because it was not time for the people to understand. Even the disciples whom Jesus said were given the right to know, they still had to ask Jesus to explain the parables to them. Note, there are no parables outside of the Gospels. With the advent of the Holy Spirit came the help men needed to know the truths of God. Jesus made this clear in Matthew 13, 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Later in Jesus' ministry, he said to his disciples in John 16, 25, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, 
but I will tell you plainly about the Father. What was the disciples' response? John 16, 29. His disciples said to him, See, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. From the end of the gospel forward, the scripture speaks plainly without figures of speech when it comes to the foundational truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the duty of all believers and especially those who are called to preach to declare God's truth unobstructed by myths. How can you do that? The the scriptures are breathed by God. That The Bible is a divinely inspired book rooted in history, as Peter declares right here. He and the other apostles are eyewitnesses. Based on their testimony, he says, it is unquestionably true. Therefore, this is how you unobstructedly declare truth, by declaring the truth from Scripture and from Scripture only. Peter goes on to show the truth of his claim through one of the things he and the others witnessed. This comes from the the time he, James, and John went up the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ. Verses 17 and 18. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's whole point is that the apostles' preaching and teaching is completely trustworthy. For they have been eyewitnesses to the things they preach. None of it's made up. A few of them were present when Christ began his ministry. They saw his baptism. All of them were there when he ascended into heaven. Peter agrees with John when John says, We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He picks one of them. One event to show the truth of all of this. He picks the transfiguration. Three of the disciples were chosen by Christ to be with him on the mountain and to pray with him. They saw Moses and Elijah talking with Christ. Now I want to ask you, how did they know there were Moses and Elijah? There were no pictures of Moses and Elijah around. They also heard the voice from heaven. The very voice of God from the Father himself declaring Jesus to be the Son of God and the God the Father was well pleased with him. These men knew it was a Moses and Elijah because God put it in their heart. Couldn't have been any other way. Here's proof beyond question that this wonderful plan of election is exactly what Peter, John, and the other writers of the New Testament declare it to be. They beheld the glory and honor that belonged to this God-man, the Savior of the world. This ties back to the personal testimony Peter delivered in verses 12 through 15. He spoke of the need to continually declare the truths of God, those basic foundational truths that underlie the gospel message. God himself delivered the proof of Jesus as the Christ. One of those very basic truths is if we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, the one sent from heaven by the Father, then what? We have eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? Believe and trust in Christ and in Christ alone. He's the one the Father sent to do for you what you could never do for yourself. So God himself 
is not willing that any should forget these basic facts around their salvation. He has declared it before these men, and he has brought them before you. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ right here in the scripture before you. Now, in this last section, we come to the real weighty proof of election as a doctrine from God. Verses 19 through 21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter goes from talking about the spoken word of God to the written word of God. No doubt, you understand there is a very real and intimate connection between the spoken word and God's written word. This is a clear declaration that both carry the great meaning to all who follow Jesus Christ. King James gives a more accurate translation of the first phrase in this section. It says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. This indicates that Peter is saying what we as apostles have told you is backed up completely by the teaching of the prophets of the Old Testament. This would be in keeping with the Jewish people's unquestioning acceptance of the Old Testament writings as the word of God. Therefore, Peter is declaring that the greatest proof of the truth of election is to be found in the written word of God. He also adds to this a warning. He, is, he, in regard to the writing, written word, says, which you will do well to heed. Listen to it. This is what you need. This is doctrine. This is the doctrine of election. This doctrine of election is of such importance that you cannot afford to ignore any of the evidence of it. His next words place emphasis on this as a light shines in a dark place. These words are truth. They are light given to all who are lost in the darkness. Paul has told you that each and every one of you were at one time lost in darkness, dead in your trespasses and sins. It is this light, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that shows the way out of this terrible darkness. It's interesting how he continues this until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Some want to say this refers to Christ's second coming. Well, I agree with Matthew Henry that it refers instead to the awakening of the knowledge that you are a sinner lost and without hope apart from Jesus Christ. It is only as Jesus comes into your heart and makes known to you the wonder of his offer of eternal life that you can begin to understand and be obedient to his commands. This is the rising of the morning star. This is the breaking of dawn, bringing you out of the darkness of selfishness into the glorious light of service to your creator. The Old Testament is a light pointing you to Jesus Christ. It teaches all anyone needs to know to come to Christ. It shows men as sinners who have wicked and desperate hearts. It shows their need of cleansing by the blood. 
It shows that this work can only be accomplished by a perfect life. It declares God alone to be holy. It makes clear that it will be God himself who will come and complete all of these works for his people. It clearly announces the coming of the Messiah to do for his people what they could never do for themselves. Once you have heard these truths declared and and God has worked in your heart by his spirit, then, then the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And you no longer need to be pointed to Christ because he is in your heart, ever guiding you deeper into his truth and into fellowship with him. Once Jesus is in your heart, Peter says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture of any is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. Now, you might ask, why is this important? Because it goes back to proof of the doctrine of election. You must place your confidence in God and in God alone. That means you have absolute confidence in the word given through the scripture. You are dependent on God and on his word. If you're not depending on Jesus Christ and on Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then my friend, you aren't saved. Christ is the only one who brings salvation. I am the way, the life, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Place your hope, place your trust in him. You understand, these words are not from men, but are the very thoughts of God himself. This is proof of all Peter has taught in this letter. He comes speaking as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He comes to teach you the truth of God's message sent through Jesus Christ. That truth is that God chose you from before the earth's foundation was laid. He has provided everything you need for life and godliness. He is in complete control. No, you are totally without response. You're not totally without responsibility. You have responsibility. You have many things that you need to do, but you do them only to show your love and appreciation for the wonderful things God's done for you. You're not earning from God. You can't. You don't have anything to offer God. Peter goes on in verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Here you can clearly see the passiveness of man and the activity of God. Scripture does not in any way come from man. Man has no part in the origination of the truths of God. It is God who carries those who write his word and breathes into them the very thoughts he wants conveyed. This goes to show without doubt the doctrines found in the writing of all Scripture, both old and new, come from the mind and from the heart of God and from him only. They completely bypass man's thought process. No writer of scripture put one thing into the writing of the portion of scripture assigned to him that God didn't want there. My friends, there's no greater proof of the doctrine of election as Peter lays it out in this letter than the complete agreement with the doctrine as it is expressed throughout scripture. The whole of the Bible is in agreement that it is God who initiates the process of salvation with the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. Once that work is begun, it is as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, 
a good work begun by God from which he will never cease until it is complete and the believer is with him in heaven. Now, in conclusion, there's still one proof for election even greater and more convincing than that which Peter shows, and I think it has clearly been alluded to. The greatest of all proofs is the change in the heart when you recognize yourself as a sinner and see God's holiness and when you come face to face with your need of a Savior. This all goes along with Peter speaking of the day dawning and the morning star rising in your heart. As you understand, your total inability and you cry out in utter hopelessness to God, he sends the Spirit of Christ into your heart and you come to know the love You come to know the wonder of having someone carry you through this impossible maze of restoration. We can't do it ourselves. You need Christ. He does for you those things you could never do. He opens the curtain that separates you from God. He lives the perfect life. He dies the atoning death and wins the resurrection victory. He prepares a place for you with he and the Father. And he will return to take you to that place and will keep you there with he and the Father for an endless time of joy and fellowship with him. Peter declares this is to be true because of its effect on his own life. He says it is true because he and the other apostles saw it unfold in Christ's life. He tells them you to he tells them you to hear God's word and believe because God declared it to be the truth. Come on, folks. Get the picture. Christ is in the word. You receive Christ through reading the word. You want more faith? Paul says faith comes through hearing the word, hearing the word of Christ. Open your ears and listen. The truth that changes lives and builds hope is for every born-again believer. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we know you're the one from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We ask you to pour out the riches of your glory on us. Strengthen us with your love through your spirit. Let hope dwell in our hearts through faith. Establish us in your grace so we can go into this world and show others the wonderful truth of our salvation. We give to him who saved us all glory. We ask you to help us as a church to minister to others and help them to see that salvation can be found only in this one you sent, your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.